Hey everyone, this is Dr. Michael Wald, and you're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Today's show topic is stress eating, or what's known as emotional eating. Now, the reason why I decided to do this topic, like every other topic that I do, is because you, the listening audience, really wanted to hear about this. And I can tell you as well from my 29 years of clinical practice that the the incidence of Stress eating or emotional eating is pervasive. Lots of us do this. In fact, even I am guilty of, from time to time, stress eating. So probably as I continue the talk today, I'll just refer to stress eating or emotional eating simply as stress eating. What I'll do today is discuss what the causes may be of stress eating and various lifestyle strategies, practical strategies that a person can do to both recognize if in fact they are stress eating and to control their behaviors so that their behaviors, your behaviors do not control you. I'll also talk about the foods that we consume that worsen stress eating by literally changing our hormones and the inflammatory mediators that are produced in our bodies in response to eating certain foods. And of course, I'll speak about foods that do quite the opposite. In other words, foods that are beneficial for changing brain neurochemistry so that we stress eat less. And once again, we control our eating rather than having our eating control us. Now, even if you're in great health, And even if you are eating extremely well, that doesn't mean that you do not stress eat. So you'll want to listen to the show today. Very practical. And I've yet to hear this topic on any of the shows on this radio station. So once again, I think that's why so many of you wanted to hear it. I'll talk about some very simple nutritional ways to help manage stress eating. But it's important to realize that the proper recognition and management of stress eating is really, like most things in life, is a holistic endeavor. In other words, not just lip service. Yes, everything's holistic. What I mean, though, is that how you live and how you're thinking, how you're eating, and the rest of your lifestyle, when it flows in a connected way, supporting one another, then you have a holistic situation here that really can work. It can work for health. It can work for offsetting one's risk of chronic degenerative diseases and simply can make you feel a lot better emotionally because, again, this topic of stress eating does rob oneself of quality of life at times. And even if you know that you stress eat, And even if you can identify when you're stress eating and you examine your your health and your life and you say, well, you know, yeah, I know I do that, but I've got it handled. Everything seems to be working fine. Well, that's wonderful. But I want to warn you that the effects of 
emotional or stress eating may take years before they have an adverse effect upon your health. In other words, there's a time in your life when you're doing well and it could be years or decades and suddenly things can switch. Things can change quite, quite easily. And those shifts, major shifts sometimes in a person's health from years of stress eating or emotional eating uh, can be, again, very insidious and just happen. Just happen one day from out of nowhere. But that really shouldn't be a surprise because there isn't a disease that I, I could mention to you, not uh, cancer or diabetes or arthritis or heart disease or autoimmune disease, you name it. There's not a disease that you can tell me that doesn't happen over usually a very long period of time where it's insidious in the sense that the individual, in other words, you, may not recognize that there's anything major going on. There may, be, may have been minor symptoms over the years that were fleeting, in other words, coming and going. Maybe it was fatigue or maybe it was brain fog or mysterious joint pains, and they go away and something else happens as the body moves around and tries to accommodate and compensate for these issues. And then one day they're there. And this is all true of emotional eating and its effects upon one's health. Can you imagine that you're eating great? You, you really do have your lifestyle pretty much handled. But if you do emotionally eat on a regular basis, you can undermine the effects of your dietary efforts. I mean, think about it. If you have a stressful life and you eat extremely well, wouldn't your common sense tell you that the health benefits of eating well might be lessened or diluted somehow by the stressful emotional part of your existence? Of course, and, and you know that. So this is very true of emotional eating. I'll talk about different supplements and some key food groups that are important to focus on. But again, the proper recognition and treatment for emotional eating goes far deeper than fantastic food choices. Good food choices, great food choices are, of course, desirable. But if one has a background of stress chemistry, then once again, those wonderful foods and their healthful benefits or their potential health benefits are diluted within this stress factory that we call our bodies. So again, I'll talk about some practical, extremely important, simple ways to identify if you're stress eating and what to do about it. Okay, let me first begin by discussing in, in brief the, the mechanisms by which stress affect the body so that we all are on the same page when it comes to emotional eating effects upon the body. So in the 1950s, I believe it was, there was a Dr. Hans Selye, and they used to call this guy the father of stress. 
and they called him the father of stress because he is the first person, this is very interesting, he is the first person that ever used the term stress to describe the physiologic changes in the body when the body is put under what we today would simply call stress. But before then, we'd have to call it just negative effects upon the body, created a chemistry which we now call stress effects. So he's the guy who took the term stress from the construction industry because they talked about you know stressors uh, as forces on different building materials, you see. So it's very interesting that he applied that word to the body. And the good and bad thing about that was when he did that and he had his groundbreaking work on the effects of stress upon the human body through his animal studies, is that um, lots of physicians simply didn't read it because they didn't know what stress was. They immediately determined that, oh, well, that's something other than what I'm interested in because that's a term used in the construction industry. So a lot of flipping of the pages took place uh, in the professional uh, medical journals uh, is the thing because it wasn't for years later until his whole concept of stress effects upon the body were wholeheartedly agreed upon and seen as groundbreaking work. So Dr. Selyer came up with three phases of stress, and he called them the alarm phase, the adaptation phase, and the exhaustion phase. Now, when an animal is under stress, let's say in the wild, like a lion or a zebra, or you name it, what happens is there is an increase in adrenaline, which is a stress hormone, during the initial alarm phase. And that alarm phase and the chemistry, even beyond adrenaline, that take place in, in mammals and even some non-mammals, allow that animal to have a faster reaction time, uh, uh, clearer thinking, uh, increased heart rate and blood flow, so that the animal can prepare to run like heck to get out of danger. That's what the alarm phase of the stress response is. Then, over a short period of time, if all goes right, the initial trigger for that alarm phase and that animal is gone. The animal escapes and then they come down from the alarm phase uh, and they had entered into the adaption, adaptation phase and then they can relax. But Here's where things can go wrong. If you, for example, or someone you know, is under stress, and by the way, stress can be psychological stress, emotional stress, energetic stress. It can be the stress of aging badly. It can be the stress of aging, period. Everything that moves and shakes in your body, it's a type of stress. If your body cannot manage that stress, it starts to what? Starts to break down. So you're going through this alarm reaction, you're that wild animal, and then guess what? The stress, at least the perception of stress in your body doesn't go away. So your body kind of gets into a bit of a groove called the adaptation phase. Now, you can only live so long well during that adaptation phase. 
If the stress does not go away, or if your perception of the stress, and by the way, folks, the perception of the stress can be both, you know what I'm gonna say, conscious and unconscious or subconscious, then the body starts to break down kind of like a car that speeds out on the highway like an alarm went off and then finally settles into a nice hum. It gets into that adaptation phase. But then if there was a way to continually gas up that car so it didn't run out of gas, eventually parts will start flying off that car and that's called the exhaustion phase. So during the exhaustion phase is where you see the end stage effects of the degenerative, inflammatory, oxidative, nutritional, endocrine, cardiovascular, immune, all the adverse effects upon the various body systems and physiological processes. Now, I've explained stress in a very generalized way, and I think we can all understand that. Now, when it comes to stress eating, it may be very, very subtle. In other words, you might feel stressed consciously. Maybe something happened, uh, you were yelled at, uh, you had to yell at someone else. Uh, maybe you lost your job unexpectedly. Maybe your car broke down and it was, a very, it was an inconvenience for you. We know the list can go on and on when it comes to triggers or potential triggers because all of those stressful events, you know, we, if we really wanna get into the semantics of it, there are no stressful events. There are merely events, there are happenings, there are things that go on in life, and due to our personal filters and our learned reactions, we respond to them in a certain way. And we know that there are really no stressors in life, there's stress only lives in our, in our minds, through our filters, in our interpretation of things, because there's always someone else that if they had been exposed to the same stressors quote, end quote, that you consider stressful, they may not at all be bothered. <laughs> you know, I have a, a doctor friend that I went to um, graduate school with, and this guy really used to tick me off. <laughs> I, I loved him, except nothing ever bothered him. And I was emotional. I would get upset. I would say, what's going on? And and, you know, all kinds of being human was what's happening on my, my end of the spectrum. But he would say, relax, relax. I would say, but you're a slob. The house is a mess. You know, we, we share the same apartment in school. I said, why don't you just clean up? He's like, relax, relax. I, he couldn't get riled up. So what was stressful to me, the mess, was not stressful to him. Now, that was well, that was 33 years ago. I did the math a few days ago. And he's the very same way. He is relaxed and cool. And all of my stress that I gave up a while ago, still working on it, um, he just doesn't perceive life like I do. And he's doing just fine. And one could say that I'm doing just fine as well. But Look at the stress I put myself through. And that's the key. I put myself through. Now, having said that, when it comes to emotional eating or stress eating, there usually is, however, there always is, I should say, 
and underlying or underlying triggers that affect you or someone you know that then trigger them to go eat. And when they eat, their dopamine levels go up in their brain. It's a happy chemical. And then their nervous systems associate the eating and the biochemical reaction with the stress. So whenever that stress occurs or any other stress, the nervous system learns, it learns to react a specific way. It, the stress response goes on, which is some degree of what I described just a few minutes ago of what the stress response is, but more diluted perhaps on a daily basis. Someone doesn't have to be screaming you know, in, in, in anger because they're stressed. They could be quite silent as we all know, and they might've had some bad news, or maybe their kids are not listening. Maybe their husbands or wives are just not on the same page. I see this a lot. And then one woman patient that I'm thinking of at the moment, she confessed to me that she was emotionally eating and she wanted to discuss with me how she can more effectively deal with emotional eating because she felt, and she was quite right, that a lot of our healthy habits that we had discovered and created and put into place for her were being wasted because there were times where she would simply emotionally eat. And you have, if you emotionally eat, you know, uh, three bowls of broccoli, obviously that's not as bad as, as emotionally eating three bowls of ice cream, but I think you can get the idea that it's not a good thing to do this. The reason is, just like an experiment in psychology where you may have heard of it. It was called the experiment that involved Pavlov's dog. So this Dr. Pavlov, he had dogs and he would experiment with them. And he, he discovered one day that if he rang a bell and a, the dog would come investigate that sound of the bell, uh, and then he gave the dog some food, the dog would salivate. And then the dog would go away, and one day he'd ring the bell again, and he repeated this. The dog would come to him after hearing the bell. He would give the dog another snack. The dog was salivating. And then after a while, all he would have to do to get that dog to salivate was to ring the bell and not give the dog any food. Now, you might think that that is super simple, and everyone knows this, but before Pavlov did this experiment, no one, in, no one really knew uh, very, very plainly that these, when I say no one knew, of course people understood that reactions can happen and people would respond a certain way. But Pavlov discovered the concept of a conditioned response. We are often, all of us, victims of conditioned responses. I would have to say every day, multiple times a day. For example, I was cleaning up a room in my home today because my son wanted to put his guitars in this room. And uh, as I'm cleaning out this room, I found some letters from my father who is now deceased. And I'm reading one of these letters and he's um, talking about how he hopes to meet my children one day, uh, and he was congratulating me for just being married. 
So this was decades ago. This letter is decades old. And of course, when I read this, I got very teary-eyed. And that was an example of a conditioned response. The truth of the matter is, as soon as I picked up the letter, it had a certain smell to it that was old. And I knew it was a letter from my dad because I could see through the letter that was folded over the, kind, the handwriting. And I knew, and immediately my heart skipped a few beats and I started to get choked up, even before I started to read the letter. That's an example of a conditioned response. Now, if I experimented with myself and exposed myself to that letter over and over again, over time, I probably wouldn't get choked up. It's conceivable that I would become a bit resistant to that. I would uncondition the response, in other words. I would get used to it. I would adapt to it. No, it's not even adaption is not, not the, quite word, the right word. I simply would not respond that way. I would break that reaction. That reaction of me picking up the letter, smelling what I smelled, and seeing the curvy handwriting that was my father's triggered a whole cascade of emotional feelings in me. And that is exactly what Pavlov did with his dogs. Now, once those reflexes in our lives take hold, they become, uh, they become these conditioned reflexes, as I said, and they cause specific neurochemical changes in the brain and physiologic changes throughout the body. Like I said, when I saw the letter smell the smell, it was the smell and the visual that triggered palpitations in my chest. I started to sweat a little bit. Um, my face began to grimace a bit. My eyes got teary. And it is very possible to unlearn, as I mentioned, these reflexes, but it's more difficult. Now, when it comes to emotional eating, if I were the type that when that happened and I felt very badly or sad, I felt sad, really, uh, missed, missing my father, my father, by the way, was a holistic doctor who inspired me to do what I do. So my whole life is what it is because of my father and also my mother. But you can get the, to get the idea. So if I then would have gone to the refrigerator and started to stuff my face, and this is something I noticed that I would do often, then if you yourself have a stressor of any type, whether it's an upset or some other stressor, and you find yourself eating to placate that, then that is, by definition, emotional eating. If you continue that pattern of behavior, you, you cause certain neurochemical and structural physical changes in your nervous system, your brain. It literally takes a different shape. The neurons change in accordance with this conditioned reflex called emotional stress of any type. You know, the term emotional stress includes all kinds of stressors in your life, right? They can be physical stress, you're in pain, emotional stress, my husband doesn't listen, my wife, uh, you know, does, doesn't show me appreciation, whatever it is. And 
the similar biochemical pathways are triggered in your body, even though there may be different stressors. They all go through like the same wiring, so to speak. And then if that means you go to eat and you reinforce that pattern, just like Pavlov's dogs, then when you don't eat, this is the key point, when you do not follow through with what you generally would do, that could actually add to more stress and more frustration. It may, you may not even be able to label it that it was from, let's say, not eating. Like if you don't eat after a stress, you might get super irritable because the body is withdrawing in a sense or it's, or it's uh, fighting against your, your new behavior called you're not eating. The body wants to eat because it got used to that. So let's take this to a practical level. The very first thing that an individual must do if they want to address emotional eating, which by the way, can cause uh, obesity, obviously, overweight for sure, and a lot of you skinny people out there or skinny fat people, because I take your body composition tests, the bioimpedance test is another name for it, and I measure your percentage of muscle, water, and fat on the body, and some of you look okay visually, you don't look like you're overweight, but you have too much fat relative to your muscle, and your metabolic rates are too slow. So this can be a consequence of emotional eating. So the first thing to do with emotional eating is to, to, to really deal with it in, in, a, in a true and in a more permanent way is you must first address the root causes of emotional eating. If you have emotional eating, a stress happens and you eat, a stress happens and you eat, a stressor happens and you eat, your body will learn that. And it will be very difficult for it to unlearn it, but it can. I mentioned a woman earlier that said to me, Dr. Wald, I, I am an emotional eater. I need your help. So we started to talk about what it is or what things that she thought were the cause of her emotional eating. Because if you don't think about these causes, and I know this is common sense for a lot of you, but if you don't actually identify the causes of emotional eating and you just try to fight your way to not eat, you might have zero success. You might have limited success or some success for a limited period of time. And then eventually, because you didn't address the underlying causes, right? We're always talking about addressing underlying causes in the holistic health field. It's important that we do that. It's essential that we do that. So this woman identified for me that she had some family issues. And some of those family issues centered around the relationship that she has with her husband. And many of you know what I'm talking about. Perhaps your husband is not home enough. Perhaps your husband doesn't help out with the kids enough. Maybe your husband or your wife, depending on the perspective, uh, simply shows lack of interest in you, lack of interest in sex, um, seems disengaged. Whatever the issue is, 
it needs to be dealt with. And it needs to be dealt with with health coaches and or therapists or other qualified mental health professionals that know how and have experience dealing with the root causes and remedies for emotional or stress eating. So depression and anxiety are commonly diagnoses given to people who stress eat. And for some people, being diagnosed with anxiety or or depression, uh, that's enough for them to really take notice and for them to seek help. Now, in my experience, in my 29 years of experience doing this kind of work, lots of people that I see are not too keen on, they're not really in favor of, they've had poor experiences with therapists, okay, or other types of mental health workers. And, um, you know, they say to me, Dr. Wald, you know, I tried that and it, it just didn't work. What I say to them is this, and I believe this, keep trying because it's not enough to just have friends that you can talk to about things. That's wonderful and that is a support and that is important. But a trained individual, the right person for you, can not only help you elucidate the actual underlying causes of stress eating, but will help you with strategies to recondition your body and decondition your body to all the various triggers of stress eating. So this is essential. I have to emphasize that emotional and stress eating, you cannot cure this with just changing your nutrition. And some of you are saying, and and have asked me uh, in the emails, well, Dr. Wald, you've said, what about using nutrition in the form of supplements to affect neurotransmitters in the brain? So the answer to that is yes. Various oral amino acids and certain vitamins and minerals and certain phytonutrients can be used as adjunctive, as uh, a real help and support for managing holistically emotional eating. But the use of these nutritional uh, products will not fully manage this condition. What will is a combination of the proper therapy, as I said, and then the right nutrition. So, for example, for some individuals with emotional eating, if they could increase their brain's level of dopamine, that would help them have more resilience against the stress effects in the body, which are triggered by whatever events or concerns that person has in their lifetime, and will help disrupt partly the, the bad biochemistry. We're going to call it bad for this purpose because we don't like emotional eating. will help offset that chemistry to a certain extent. But you don't want to use nutrients like GABA, 
See, GABA is gamma amino butyric acid. GABA is an excellent nutrient. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, which means when the brain gets excited, like under stress, GABA can help lower the stress response in the brain so the brain can make more rational choices. In other words, so the brain can make choices as opposed to reacting to a trigger. When those Pavlovian dogs heard the bell, they reacted. And see, the dogs, they react. Human beings react too. Emotional eating is one, some of that, uh, an example of some of those reactions that just happen when an event happens, just like the ringing of the bell. The person reacts, they get food. But we have the ability through our design of our brains and, the, and, and, and through emotional intelligence that some of us need to learn around this particular issue. And we can also make smarter choices in our diets and in our supplementation. And we might want to take GABA, for example. Now, just a quick break. For those of you just joining us, we're talking about emotional or stress eating, the factors that underlie emotional and stress eating, such as identifying the root causes of it, which are various stressors that uh, affect an individual that might, be, that might masquerade as a diagnosis like stress or depression or worsening bipolar, worsening schizophrenia. And we're right now talking about the use of one neurotransmitter, GABA. For those of you who have comments about this show or others, you can call me at 914-552-1442. That's 914-552-1442. Although that's better if you want to schedule to speak with me either in person or at a distance uh, as a patient. For your questions uh, and comments, best to email those to me at the following email. That's Info at blooddetective.com. Info at blooddetective.com. And then my website where you can find all sorts of videos, and I'll be putting up another 50 of them in the next month on all sorts of topics. So there's about 50 or 60 there now. You'll find them under the video section of the website, and you'll find all the radio shows under the blog section at this email. It's intmedny.com. I-N-T-M-E-D ny.com. So GABA is also a prescription medication called gabapentin, and it's used for pain, and it's used for sleep, and it's used to reduce anxiety and depression. Wow, all of that. And um, what's so wonderful about GABA is it can be used at very high doses with extreme safety, even in medicine. Now, a little bit of a disclaimer here. First of all, if any of you are on uh, SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibiting medications, or other types of medications that might increase your serotonin, uh, you need to be under the uh, advisement of a trained uh, physician or clinical nutritionist before you use any nutrition, really, particularly if you're going to use it in pharmacologic doses to, to, to truly make a big dent in how your body responds to stress. But again, using nutrition, even in the ways I'm going to tell you now, without dealing with the root causes of 
the stress response that causes a person to emotionally eat it is like throwing, I don't know, it's like throwing stones in a lake, you know. You'd have to throw about a million stones in, in a tiny little lake before you'd finally see the stones rise to the top, before they, before they do anything. So we don't want to dilute our efforts, but it can and nutrition does make quite a difference, both dietarily and through supplements. Other people have more complex amino acid or neurotransmitter problems in their brains. So I've seen individuals that have a multitude of neurotransmitter deficiencies, and these can be corrected either in part or fully with the appropriate amino acid and or protein supplementation. So the first thing too that I found is it's always important to assess someone to make sure that they absorb normally because if you give them the right neurotransmitters and the right proteins to make neurotransmitters in the brain, I didn't really say that, but you should know that 80% of the neurotransmitters in your brain, which control all of your thoughts, feelings, and emotions, even how you move your body, they are produced by uh, proteins in the diet. And then there are vitamins and minerals, and they act as cofactors for certain amino acids to be produced in the body and to work in the body. For example, a pyridoxine or a vitamin B6 is a very common B vitamin, probably the most common one required to work as a cofactor, like, and that means a partner, for various neurotransmitters to work. And the brain also is highly dependent upon for emotional wellness on magnesium. So magnesium is said to be the most abundant mineral uh, in the brain. Um, it's not really. It is a very abundant mineral in the brain. The most abundant mineral in the brain is actually zinc. Now, I'll talk about zinc in a moment. Magnesium is required for nearly 500 different enzymatic reactions to occur throughout the entire body. And a lot of those are in the nervous system and the brain. So it's important that a person take the right dose of magnesium at the right times. And that is an individual basis based on what the concern is. There's no specific way of supplementing someone with magnesium or even GABA or any other nutrients we might talk about for emotional eating because emotional eating is just a, it's a label. And uh, personally, I don't treat labels, I treat people. So the nutrition must be considered in context with the entire health considerations of the person, including their chemistries and other factors, questionnaires, interview, all of that. But these are general categories of things to consider, magnesium, amino acids, protein. Zinc, as I mentioned, is the most abundant mineral in the brain. And it's particularly, I mean, most of the, the zinc in the brain is stored in a part of the brain called the hippocampus. Now, the hippocampus is the emotionality part of the brain. So this is, you might say, a therapeutic, a therapeutic target of at least how I do nutrition for the, for the brain. So there's different forms of zinc and there's different ways of assessing zinc and the ways in which to assess it and how much a person should have 
should be based on things like zinc taste tests and possibly white blood cell zinc levels, possibly serum levels. Depending on the health concern, the best way to test a nutritional compound may be different. Now, I'm going to say that again because I've never actually spoken about this on uh, any show I, I think I have done maybe in, in 29 years. And here's what I said. People will say to me, Dr. Wald, what's the best test for zinc? What's the best test for magnesium? What's the best test for vitamin C? What's the best test for the B vitamins, people will say to me. <laughs> um, first of all, there are lots of different B vitamins and different kinds of vitamins, B vitamins, should be checked differently in different tissues based upon the health concerns. So here's an example. If someone has a reduced immune system, the best test for zinc would be the zinc need or zinc deficiency is that the person's white blood cells do not move under the microscope or they move too slowly. And that finding is supported if the person, when they put liquid zinc in their mouths and move it around to try to taste it, if they're deficient, they won't taste anything. So sometimes it's a combination of tests. I'll give you another example. The brain and the body, when it undergoes stress eating or any stress, tends to hyper-utilize vitamin C. So you might say, well, I'll just take lots of vitamin C. I'll take ester C. Okay. Ester C, you should throw it in the garbage because it does not fix a lot of issues based upon the testing that I've done over many years. That's an invention of someone in a lab. And like Linus Pauling once said about vitamin C, we don't need to reinvent the blade of grass. So we don't need this fancy dancy ester C. Most individuals need and do very well with a properly buffered, powdered vitamin C. Now, vitamin C is stored mostly in the body, in the adrenal glands. And most individuals, well, let me correct that. Studies have shown that the average person, and I realize the average person does not exist, but this is how medicine discusses things, which is why I am only concerned in your needs compared to you over time. But let me use this as an example. The average individual, it said, stores in the body two and a half grams of vitamin C. And when a person has various stressors, their need for vitamin C could increase to five or 10, 15, even 20,000 milligrams or 20 grams of vitamin C. It could be much higher than that in various conditions like cancer and autoimmune diseases like hyperthyroid or hypothyroid or you name it, autoimmune disease will do that. Any stress will cause a hyper use of nutrition. So that's concept number one. And concept number two that I was reiterating here with these examples is that there is no best test for a vitamin, mineral, or phytonutrient. There may be a group of tests and assessments that are best for that person if they have, for example, heart disease, or if they have, for example, emotional eating. If someone has emotional eating, most of the time, in my experience, the best test for vitamin C need is a urine test. 
Now, in certain cancers, the best test for vitamin C need is a plasma or serum level. In other conditions for various nutrients, it might be a white blood cell. Just like the best test for your average glucose levels over, let's say, three to four months is a hemoglobin A1C test. That test tests a protein that kind of survives for that period of time and has a memory and measures is affected by glucose. So that's why it's the diabetic test for glucose. If you measure glucose in your blood sugar today, that only tells you glucose in your blood right now. Not five minutes from now, not an hour from now, certainly not tomorrow. But a hemoglobin A1C test doesn't care if you stuff your face with ice cream for two weeks. Well, maybe for two weeks. The, the level might change a little bit, but it's a record of about three to four months. So different tests are more or less appropriate for different people. And different people stress eat. So we've established that the first thing is we need to address the root cause of stress eating. And that has to be dealt with with a mental health care professional and hopefully also someone who really knows their clinical nutrition to provide the right nutrition for the brain. Remember, the brain doesn't exist out of context with the rest of the body. That's why stress can kill us in every area. So if it doesn't kill us, it can damage us in every area. So here's what you do practically. If you are finding yourself in front of the refrigerator, you need to ask yourself, am I hungry? Are you hungry? And if you are not hungry, you need to walk away. I know it's not easy, but you must do it. If you do that, you know what you're doing? You're breaking that condition, Pavlonian, ring the bell and start to salivate response. You will be changing your brain chemistry and, uh, and, and reconfiguring, reconditioning. You are reconditioning your nervous system and your stress response to eating. You must break the pattern to do that. If you do that enough times, you will start to break away from stress eating. So every time you're eating, you ask yourself, am I hungry? And if you are hungry, fine. Eat your food slowly. Enjoy its texture. Enjoy its taste. And every five, ten minutes, ask yourself, am I still hungry? And if you're not sure, walk away. And if you are still hungry, well, eat. But you must make sure that your portions are fixed on a plate and that's it. But key point, ask yourself if you're hungry. And if you're not hungry and you're about to eat, you need to stop. If you break away, that's what I call awareness development. I don't believe that's a psychological term. That's what I call it. You have to become aware. That's the first step. The other practical step is you need to eliminate the worst snacks and the worst foods in your home. And you know what I'm going to say, everyone. If you eat desserty foods and pastries, refined and processed foods and sugars, fried foods, packaged foods that are salty foods, these sorts of foods increase stress hormones 
and they promote inflammation. And all of that will support stress eating because the same kind of chemical changes or biochemical changes that occur in your body when you stress eat and when you eat badly are nearly the same. Okay? By replacing these unhealthy foods by healthier ones, you will be changing your biochemistry. But most of the, the change that you'll get, the positive change you'll get in your biochemistry is by refraining from eating when you have identified that you are not hungry, which means you have identified that you were emotionally going to eat. And as a little bit of support, and additionally, green tea and white tea, for example, are rich in an amino acid called L-theanine. I'll spell it for you. T-H-E-A-N-E-N-E. This amino acid helps to offset some of the stress response. So you might want to have a good amount of that tea on hand. And then if you're really having a hard time and you keep on obsessively thinking about eating, even though you're trying to pull away, have a nice big cup of green tea or white tea. And then wait 15 minutes and see what happens. But again, if you're not hungry, you must fight it. That is the best supplement you can give yourself by resisting it. Nothing will work better. Now at nighttime, to help curb your sweet tooth and to increase your melatonin in preparation for sleeping, you might want to eat some dark cherries or frozen cherries. Delicious, very naturally sweet. They will help satisfy your, your low blood sugar or your stress hormones, by the way, that make you feel like you have low blood sugar. I'm gonna say that again, a hypoglycemic reaction, which means low blood glucose, which can make you kind of shaky, irritable, needing food, all of that, feeling hungry, feels very much like the stress response. So I have people that see me that say, yeah, I'm, I'm hypoglycemic and this and that, and they, describe their feelings, I ask them to describe it, and they're actually having uh, anxiety, or they're just in a chronic stress pattern, and they've identified that as a hypoglycemic pattern for one reason or another, okay? But even if you have a hypoglycemic reaction, then you wanna have things like cherries, and you wanna have that green and white tea, you wanna eat a diet that's higher in healthy protein sources like beans and raw nuts, seeds, and grains if you don't have any aversion to grains, and legumes with high levels of, and, and all vegetables actually, unless you have some concern with a particular food, then you don't have it. But all of the healthy foods, the again, the fruits and the vegetables and the lean meats if you eat meat, and poultry and turkey and, and uh, a fish, these help the body manage blood sugar and increase one's resiliency against stress 
if you have a poor diet, if you don't eat enough, if you eat irregularly, if you eat badly, you are going to increase whatever stress stuff is going on in your body. You will not be able to handle stress nearly as well. It's going to be that whole uh, exhaustion phase of the Han Selye stress response. Remember, there's the alarm, there's the adaptation phase, and if you don't get out of, out of that stress, then the exhaustion phase, everything just breaks down. So I mentioned fish because fish is high in omega-3 fatty acids. Some of you, if you're concerned about metals, then you may want to take oral chelators, uh, maybe N-acetylcysteine, which is a very effective mercury chelator. You might want to get a baseline of your mercury if you have this strong concern. Lots of people that I see do care about, they are concerned about heavy metal toxicity. So, but you can take preemptively N-acetylcysteine and alpha lipoic acid, fiber in your diet, acts as a chelator. And I use my detox one, detox two, detox three, and detox four on most of my patients because they're superfood powders that have tens of thousands of phytonutrients um, and they manage a lot of basic health concerns in terms of blood sugar irregularities, inflammation lowering, heavy nutrition, and of course, getting dozens and dozens of equivalents of fruits and vegetables with superfood powders. And mine are pharmaceutically uh, based. So I tend to have people take them at one scoop of each of these four detox powders mixed all together, diluted in water once or twice a day. And that seems to work very nicely as a base. If some of you are not into gluten, well, that's fine. But you have to make sure that the rest of your nutrition is there because gluten is a major source of protein. So if you're going to eliminate it, once again, fine. I wrote a book on gluten called Glutenaholics. I know all about the problems with gluten in some people. But if that's not you, and if you're not sure if it's not you, you may not want to eliminate it. It may not be a problem for you. Just a side note. Now, it's very important for you to keep a diet emotional journal. So what you want to do is when you eat, you write the time of day down and you put what you ate and how you felt. If you do this, if you keep this diet emotional journal, it will help you identify when you are emotionally eating. So then you can say to yourself, am I hungry now? If the answer is no, do something else. Get to the gym. If you don't you can't get to the gym, have exercise equipment at home, have, have something, a jump rope, uh, do push-ups, do some sit-ups, do yoga, whatever it is. And if you don't like exercise, tough. Get to learn to like exercise, get an exercise bike. I didn't like running for, for the first 10 years that I did it. And one day I just said, you know, this is, a, this is a gift to be able to do this. And I changed my orientation to loving it. So when, when, if there's something you don't like, that can be healthy for you, well, that's you right there. You should be identifying that that is an, a negative association that you have that may not have any basis in reality. So when you identify that you're emotionally eating, you must ride out that emotional eating storm because guess what? If you ride it out, it will pass. It will pass. 
it's very much like an anxiety attack. Anxiety attacks are horrible. I've, I've had the experience of having an anxiety attack years ago, and they are absolutely horrific. But then I learned to recognize that they will pass. They will, I will not be dying, probably not, and they will pass. And then I had a different association with the anxiety. And then, and among other things that I did, it went away and I never experienced another anxiety attack. So breaking the conditioned reflexes is what we're talking about here. Identify, ask yourself, am I hungry? If the answer is no, walk away, ride out the emotional storm. As I said, it's going to pass. If you learn, here's the key, everyone. If you learn to deal with the bad feelings that underlie the emotional eating, you will change your nervous system patterns. So do not eat. Do not eat during the negative emotions. Don't allow the food to become your coping strategy. That's the key and the, the point I'm going to end with today. If you allow the food, if you give in to the temptation to emotionally eat, you are basically saying to your nervous system, I want this to be the way I react all the time. No wonder uh, just mere mental trying to pull away from the bad habit doesn't work. You can't positive think your way through that. You have to make it go away. Learn to deal with the bad feelings with a proper mental health specialist. Augment everything with the lifestyle suggestions that I've made. And of course, you want to exercise as well. I barely mentioned that, plus all the food changes, maybe supplementation. And once again, you must not eat during the negative emotions. Do not allow the food to become your coping strategy, then you will make changes. You'll make changes that eventually will take over you. You simply won't do it anymore. Okay, I hope this was helpful. I so much appreciate the individuals that suggested the topic to me because when you make these, these topic suggestions, you change a lot of lives. There's a lot of people that listen to Ask the Blood Detective and I thank you for that. Once again, my name is Dr. Michael Wald. You can reach me by calling 914-552-1442. My email for questions, concerns, show topics is info at blooddetective.com and the website address is intmedny.com. Thanks everyone. See you next time. Don't let it wait. You got the girl start much too late.